Really glad you're here. Welcome. Uh, if you're visiting with us, my name's Matt, and we are going to finish our series on the book of Ephesians today. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Ephesians chapter 6. We'll begin with verse 10. And as you are turning there, um, you know, I've, you notice something about Oregon in the summertime, and that is that we just don't know what to do with ourselves, right? Like, we go crazy when the sun comes out around here. I don't know about you guys. And for people who are not used to weather above 65 degrees, we just, we have certain a certain set of problems, right? Like, you, know, you ever notice, like, Oregonians are really confused on what to wear. Like, so it's like, do you wear shorts or do you wear, like, lightweight hiking gear, Apparently, lightweight hiking gear is the way to go around here. I'm like, oh, I didn't know that. I thought we had shorts for hot weather. But, and you know, like, so that's one set of people. And then you have another set of people who are like, the sun is out, so all of my body should be out too. And you're like, oh, you also have a slight problem. Or like, there's this whole rhythm to Oregon summers. And that's, I mean, literally like a rhythm. You go to a park and all of a sudden there's a drum circle that wasn't there the day before. And you're like, all right, I guess I'll join. Like, sweet. Uh, we, we can stuff. Like, as soon as the sun com- comes out, like, you get out your mason jars, and you're like, well, yeah, we gotta can stuff for the winter. And, okay, like, all right, there it is. Um, and then there's, of course, some things we're not prepared for. Like, I don't know, we forget that the sun is this burning ball of gas that, that actually burns your skin if you don't put that thing that has SPF in it. Remember those three letters are important to you in the summer? Anyway, I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you have to get something across a stretch of concrete and you aren't wearing shoes, but you're used to concrete being cold and kind of refreshing, and so you run out there having forgotten that concrete absorbs heat and that your feet are vulnerable, right? And then so you do one of two things. You either like hop back or you run faster. And when you run faster, you add a slapping sensation to the burning sensation. And that's not good either. And... And this is, of course, a very important lesson for us and a reminder that if we don't want to get burned, we need to put on shoes, right? Like that's, this is the moral of the story, right? That if you don't want to get burned, you have to put on shoes. And that is actually so true for a great deal more in life, correct? Like there is a lot to life that if you value things that are vulnerable, you are intentional about protecting it. Right? If you value something vulnerable, you will be intentional about protecting it, whatever that is. And this is true of ourselves as well. If we know we have a vulnerability to something and we value our life, we protect it. And so if you're vulnerable to addiction, you surround yourselves with people who like help protect you in that. And if you see vulnerable people who are pushed down economically, you value them, so you protect them and you advocate for them, and on and on and on. And last week, we looked at three verses that speak to our greatest vulnerability, right? Now, high school, middle school folks, welcome to the room. This is a season in your life where there is this thing in your brain that's going that says, I am invincible, and um, next year, if you're like going to college, you begin to realize that you're not, and it stinks. Um, it's so disappointing. But And then some of that has stuck with the rest of us, and we think, I'm not really that vulnerable, right? Maybe because I have a lot of money, or maybe because I eat really well and exercise a lot. And whatever our obsession is on finding security for ourselves, let me tell you that the scriptures say 
you're actually a very vulnerable person because you live in a spiritual landscape. And that spiritual landscape, Paul says in Ephesians 6, is actually defined as a struggle. Okay? That his word for struggle is literally wrestle, which comes from this idea of hand-to-hand combat. Now, if you have been in a fight and you get down to hand-to-hand combat, how desperate is that situation? Like, that is... This is a last-ditch effort, right? Like, we are... We are struggling here. And so the picture for your spiritual landscape, the context of our lives, is this idea of hand-to-hand combat, wrestling. And Paul says we need to be strong. We need to uh, put on armor to stand firm. Stand firm against what? Well, stand firm in the struggle against the powers that exploit our vulnerability, right? And so maybe you do life understanding that life is, it's a battle. And so it kind of looks like this. And you think to yourself, like, I get up in the morning and I paint my face blue and we are going to do battle today, right? And you kind of like, that's how you see the world. And you're like, there is battle. But maybe you're kind of more ignorant to the battle. Like, it's kind of just not part of your grid. And so you kind of look at life like this. And you're like, do you remember Andy Griffith's show? Like, they gave... They gave him one bullet. Like, and you kind of do life with one bullet. And you're like, I'm, I'm ready for you know, having to, somebody doing a citizen's arrest. or something, you know? And so you, you just kind of are ignorant to the battle. And, and the truth is that the less aware we are of the battle, the more vulnerable we become. C.S. Lewis, uh, in the, I think in the intro to his book, The Screwtape Letters, um, offers his, his kind of analysis of our ignorance to the battle. And he says there's kind of two mistakes you can make. On one hand, you can give the devil too much credit. Right? This is, he is like the chief enemy of God's people. You can give him too much credit. You can do, have an unhealthy interest in him and think of him as too powerful. And you become afraid and paralyzed by assuming that the devil is behind every bush. Now, on the other hand, you can make the other error, which is to not give him enough credit, uh, to ignore him altogether, not believing in him at all. Right, And so later on in The Usual Suspects, Kevin Pacey, Spacey picks up that theme and says the greatest trick the devil ever told or pushed off on people is that he doesn't exist. Right, And so we get this idea that there isn't really a battle at all, but this is actually all part of his scheme. And in fact, the, the methods of the devil or the schemes or what the King James calls the wiles of the devil, I like that word, he's a, he's a wily one. Right, He has these schemes and all of his schemes come out of his nature and if you understand who the devil is, that actually his name, Diabolos, means liar. And so everything that he's going to do that is part of his scheme or method to thwart God's people is going to be a lie. And so there's usually two kinds of ways that he lies to us, right? And this is why there's such a struggle. We're vulnerable. We're vulnerable to the lies of the evil one. And, and one set of lies has to do with temptation, now, temptation is where the devil exploits too high a view of yourself, right? Where you kind of think um, really highly of God's love, but not too highly of God's holiness. And so God's, you know, his job is to forgive me. He's kind of just okay with whatever. And he just kind of loves everything. And I can do what I want. And so we kind of buy into these temptations. No one will ever know. Or God doesn't want me to have fun. Or I've earned it. Now, the other set of lies have to do with accusation. This plays off of too low a view of ourselves, right? Where we lift up God's holiness, but Satan hides God's love. And so we kind of 
we think, oh, I'm a horrible, awful worm, right? And this is not a biblical view. That's not humility. That is actually giving in to accusation. So you have this voice that says, you're a screw-up, you're fat, you're never going to succeed, no one likes you. And it's accusation. Do you ever feel so strongly that you really deserve something that God isn't giving you? Or maybe you'd just really be better off if you did things your way instead of God's? That's temptation. You ever feel so strongly that a difficult circumstance in your life is really God out to get you? He's punishing you, pummeling you because he doesn't like you? Your sin's more powerful than your Savior? That's accusation. Brothers and sisters, this is the devil playing you. He is a liar. One of the best books I've read on kind of this idea of the devil's schemes and how we stand firm is uh, by this English pastor named Thomas Brooks, and he wrote it in like the mid-1600s. You can buy it on Kindle for like 99 cents. I think it's called Precious Remedies in Defense Against the Devil's Schemes. or something. You know, they, they had long titles for books back then, right? Now it's like outliers, done. You know, like, anyway, so we, we, we've maybe progressed or maybe we've regressed on naming our books. But anyways, it's a great book, Thomas Brooks, 99 cents on Kindle. Definitely a worthy read on this subject. Anyway, the good news here is that God knows we're in a struggle and he cares about it and he actually has a strategy for protecting ourselves in our vulnerability to the to the schemes and the wiles and the methods of the devil to lie and tempt and accuse and otherwise thwart the work of God in your life. And his strategy, God's strategy, is this thing called the armor of God. The armor of God. And, and as we wrap up Ephesians today, as we, as we bring Ephesians to a close, we're not going to get a chance to look at every single verse at the end here, but we will focus here on this idea of how God secures his people and offers a way of protecting themselves on their journey of walking worthy of their calling. And this is a, a, a very important Topic. So, as we look at this, these questions today about the armor of God, we're going to ask, what is it? What's the armor? How does it work? And how do we get it? What is it? How does it work? And how do we get it? So, let's read the text to begin with. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13. Start there. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that you may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are. And that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be with the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. This is the word of the Lord. Now, what on earth is the armor? Now, what do you guys think of when you hear put on the armor of God? What is the armor? Uh, Maybe if you are historically minded, you think of one of these guys and you go to like, Armor, right? Like a Roman soldier, like the metal plates and stuff. As I was looking for pictures of Roman armor, I I found myself really curious about the backstory to this picture because you know that somebody thinks these guys are normal. Like, you know what I mean? Like, until one day at the water cooler, somebody was like, what are you doing this weekend, Bob? And he was like, we're fighting the Carthaginians. We're going to win, so we're going to celebrate a Big Owls later. Want to come? Like, this dude is a live-action role player, and he's like all about it, you know? Anyway, it's just, that to me cracks me up. I'm like, these are, wow, these are not normal guys, apparently. And so, um, that, that has nothing to do with the sermon. That is a freebie just for you to take home and ponder. Um, I, I wear special sandals on the weekends with a helmet. Anyway, I don't, I don't know why that amuses me so much. Anyway, so you think about, what is armor? It's like, that's the stuff that you put on, right? If you're an intel person, maybe you think like a really good firewall. That's what you, I don't know. Anyways, um, so let me, you know, fundamentally, armor is this thing that protects you, right? It covers vulnerable places and offers protection. It keeps you from becoming a casualty, right? That's, that's the function of armor, So let me ask you a question just before we get into what is the armor. You know, do you you know where you're vulnerable? Do you know the places in your life where you're vulnerable to the struggle, to the schemes, to the lies that come at you to undo you, to shake you and move you off of who God's calling you to be? Do you know where you're vulnerable? Do you know Satan as an aggressive and sneaky enemy? By the way... The, the, the schemes of the devil are about making evil look good. Right? That's, that's how he plays you. And it's about making lies look and feel true. Right? And when we buy into them, we get taken out and we get paralyzed and guilt or shame washes over us or, or greed and competition, vanity, pettiness. These things lock us into this place and we get in this rut of sin. And, and all because the devil knows how to exploit us. Right? He knows how to play us. The devil doesn't take a good person and make them bad. Right? You can't call devil made me did it. Do it. Right? You can't do that. Why? Because what the devil does is, like when you sing into an open piano, right? if, you just, if you hit the right note, if you hit a C in your voice, what's going to happen in the open piano without touching it? The C's are all going to start vibrating. It's a really cool thing. So this is how Satan works. Right? He plays what's already going on in your heart. Right? And so he exploits it, right? And, you know, if you, I'm 10 pounds overweight, he's going to make me feel like I'm 50 pounds overweight. If I make a little mistake at work, he's going to make me feel like I'm going to get fired. I'm a failure. I'm never going to work again, right? If, uh, if um, I got a little bit, of, you know, I'm a little bit angry, I'm a little mad at somebody, he's going to energize that and, and exploit it. And I'm going to go ballistic on somebody as I listen to him and as I give in to it. He plays what's already going on in us. And so the armor is actually about protection in the arena he engages us. Do you know how the devil plays you? Do you know where you give permission? Are you aware of the temptations that he uses that work? The accusations that he uses that you believe? 
Because once you start to become aware of the way he plays you, you begin to disarm him. But God has a strategy of success in the battles of life, and it's called the armor of God. And my guess is if you've been a Christian for long, and you've done the church thing, you've probably heard a sermon on this at some point, and you probably heard a sermon that says Paul is writing this letter in prison, and so he has Roman soldiers all around him, right? He's, in, he's a soldier of the empire of Rome, and he's sitting there, and he's thinking, I need a good metaphor for being strong. Man, there's no more powerful symbol for might and strength in the Roman Empire than the Roman soldier's armor. So I'm going to use that. And so you, you probably heard this, you know, okay, great, Paul's thinking of this, this soldier, and so he starts listing off pieces of armor. You've got to have some of that in your own life. And I would suggest that it doesn't quite go deep enough. First of all, if Paul is in a prison where guards have to wear armor, he is in a pretty bad prison, right? Like, prisoners are getting out all the time. We have to have our helmets on. Like, this, would, this wouldn't work. So historically, I have a problem with that. But then, what's the most influential thing in Paul's life for how he thinks? I would submit to you, it's not his immediate surroundings, but it's actually the Bible. Right? It's his Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And that is the lens through which he views life. And you see this all throughout Scripture. All, with, all these allusions and quotations of Scripture from the Old Testament. And Paul throughout the book of Ephesians, has been drawing heavily from the book of Isaiah in your Old Testament, right? And so he says, put on the armor of God. And then he lists six pieces of armor. He's got some pieces missing if he's drawing from a Roman soldier, like shin guards and things like that. But he has six pieces of armor, and every single one of these pieces is mentioned in the book of Isaiah, and in each one of those references to a piece of armor, the person being discussed is the coming Messiah. Now, here's what you need to know about the book of Isaiah if you're going to read Paul correctly. Isaiah is writing to the people of God, Israel, and he is telling them, look, here's what's happened. You had this covenant with God and you broke it. He called you to do a life of justice and righteousness, and you're oppressing the poor. You're not doing righteousness. You've abandoned God. You're pursuing these false gods of the nations, and you're a wreck spiritually. And so the message of Isaiah is twofold. One, there's judgment coming, all right? And he says, look, you're going into exile. People are going to take you from your land, uproot you, and you are going to be judged alongside all the nations because you've abandoned the covenant you made with God. And then the second part of Isaiah, though, is about comfort, right? That there's a coming day of salvation. That one day, salvation's going to touch the ends of the earth. That the people of Israel will be redeemed. And that they're going to be set right. And so, God's going to do this act of salvation. But you know who he's going to do it through? Through his servant, and throughout the second half of Isaiah, you get the servant songs. All these songs about this coming servant, the Messiah, this divine warrior who's going to come and do battle for his people and fight and win victory for them. And so the Messiah, Isaiah says, will fight on behalf of the people of God and do their battles for them. And Paul, in Ephesians chapter 6, lists six elements of armor that are descriptions of what the Messiah wears into battle. If you don't believe me, if you think maybe it's just a coincidence, let's take a look at him. So first of all, Ephesians says, put on the belt of truth. Why does, where's Paul getting this idea of the belt of truth? Uh, Isaiah 11.5 says, 
of the Messiah. Righteousness shall be a belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Faithfulness is tied to this idea of honesty and truthfulness. And then Paul says, put on the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation. Isaiah 59, 17 says of the Messiah that he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. Wow, that's interesting. Oh, he still must be talking about Roman soldiers, right? This is just a coincidence so far. No, no, Paul says, have a readiness that comes as a result of the gospel of peace. Go to Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, the word we have gospel from, and who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, and says to Zion, your God reigns. Who comes proclaiming the gospel? It's a church answer. I'll give you that. Who comes proclaiming the gospel? Jesus. And and what does he say to his disciples? Peace be with you. And what is the message of the gospel? Your God reigns. Or the kingdom of God is at hand. Same thing. Interesting. All right. Paul also says, take up the shield of faith to extinguish the flaming arrows of the devil. Where did he get that? Isaiah 31, 4 through 5 says of the Lord, so that the Lord of hosts will come down and fight on Mount Zion on his holy hill like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will shield The Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that New Testament authors used says essentially that God will come and be a shield bearer over Jerusalem. He will shield and deliver it and spare and rescue it. Remarkable. And in that context, he's calling people to turn and trust him, to put faith in him. As we put our faith in him, he shields us. Remarkable. Finally, Paul says to take up the sword of the spirit that is the word of God. Isaiah 49 Two says of the Messiah, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. In Revelation 1.16, Jesus comes depicted as one with a sword coming out of his mouth. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, says that the word of God is like a sword that divides even our very thoughts. So, question, what on earth does all of this theology from Isaiah really have to say to us about what the armor of God is? Let me tell you. Who's doing battle in each one of these scenes? It's God. It's the divine warrior, the Messiah. Right? And, and Paul is telling the church in Ephesians 6 to put on the armor of God. Why is it God's armor? He already wore it. He already went into battle wearing these virtues, these traits, these characteristics. And he's saying, now you, because you're in Christ need to grow in the same characteristics that Christ wore as he conquered the powers of sin, death, and devil. Do you understand what's happening here? So the one who brings salvation to the ends of the earth is the one who wears the armor. And now Paul is saying, Christ took it off his body and now puts it on his body, the church. So you wear it. He's done decisive victory in battle. He's won, and now he takes his armor and he says, put it on the church because they're going to face skirmishes. Even though the battle is decisively won, they're going to take, take uh, fire, and you know what? They need to be protected. And so we find our truest protection by standing in the victory of Jesus. That's what it means to put on the armor. It's putting on Christ. It's putting on what he's done. He fought for us and he won. And so we put his victory on like armor. Sure, we join the fray and we stand in the midst of a battle. 
but we stand because we are appropriating what Jesus has done for us. Right? And so what's the armor? It's the re- it's essentially it's the realities that Jesus has brought into our lives because of his victory over sin, death, and devil. It's it's the uh, results of his doing battle for us. That's what the armor is. And so we put on those realities, we put on those results, and we take them into ourselves, and we stand by standing in Jesus. So our greatest vulnerability is to sin and death and the devil, and Jesus has defeated those powers. And so he says, with sin, claim your forgiveness, right? Don't give into it. It doesn't have final authority in your life anymore. You're out of the dominion of Satan. You are in the kingdom of the beloved Son of God. And so we cover up and we protect our vulnerability by standing in Jesus' finished work for us. And that's what the armor is. But how does it work? Okay, great. So it's the, it's the armor of the Messiah. It's his finished work and we stand in it. But how? Well, I'm glad you asked. Very good question. So when we read this exhortation to put on the armor, we ought to be a little bit shocked. We ought to be like, Really? You're telling me to put something on that's already true of me. And if, I mean, like, if I know Jesus, he is the way, the truth, and the life, then I already have truth in my life. Put on faith? Take up the shield of faith? Why? Well, I've already trusted in Jesus. What? Why are you telling me to put something on that I already have? Um, this should strike us and give us pause. And I think it's something similar to what Paul did in Ephesians 3. So turn back in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16, where Paul prays for the church. Again, something very similar. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp, that is to comprehend, to get it, how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge so that you'll be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Paul, in Ephesians 3, is praying that we would know something that we already know. That's a weird prayer. Unless you understand that you can know something objectively without really getting it subjectively. Right? That I can know it's true, but I don't really feel like it. Has that ever happened for you? Like, I know, I'm suppo- I know that's like right, but I don't really feel like it is. I, I know God loves me, but I don't really feel the love of God in any kind of way that transforms me. Paul's prayer is that information would become transformation. And he's saying this again about the armor, that in fact, what's already true of you objectively would become true of your experience subjectively. You would take the things that are real and appropriate them in your life and how you live and what you experience. Do you understand that? So when that happens for you, when it moves from your head to your heart, something happens, you're able to stand firm. Because the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done becomes more real than the lies, the temptations, and the accusations of the enemy. Does that ever happen for you? That love of Christ becomes so compelling that sin actually becomes ugly and so temptation isn't so powerful. Or the love of Christ becomes so compelling And accusations mean nothing because you know your security is in the love of God. Has that ever happened for you? I hope it does, because that's Paul's prayer throughout the book of Ephesians, that that would happen. And so you stand by taking what's true of you in Christ and actually living in it. So let's actually take a look at how this works with each piece of armor. First of all, truth. The belt of truth. The idea of a belt isn't so much like this thing, right? A belt is... I'm going to ruin this for those of you who think armor is like really cool and strong and 
It's like an apron. It's like this leather... It's like a slip, like you wear under your dress, actually. Okay, so like really tough guy thing, right? Like put on your belt of truth, slip. Um, it's like this. It's yeah, it's kind of funny. And so I totally ruined that for you, but so it's not. We're not talking about like the thing that holds your sword. Like that would that would seem cool, but a belt is your base layer. It's your Under Armour. It's like this is the stuff that gets you ready for action. It like cinches you up and it's like kind of like this little girdle and yeah, like. Cool. So get you ready for action, though, and it's the base layer. Something gets through the other pieces of armor, it really shouldn't be able to get through this, right? And so it's a kind of last line and first line of defense in some ways. And so how does truth act like that belt? How does it become a a foundation that prepares you for the battles of life? The truth is about what's real, right? And Satan is actually all about trying to get his schemes... Uh, to work such that evil looks good, but that's not reality. Evil's evil, right? And we know it when we see it, right? And then it's about making deception seem true, right? And so he makes evil look good, and we think, oh, I'm not really greedy, I'm just thrifty. Or he makes deception look true, and we think, I don't really need forgiveness. I mean, I'm not that bad. I'm not, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't too hurtful to that person. I don't really need to go and apologize, and then I'd lose power. That would not be any good. Right? So truth is foundational in its defense because it takes us back to reality. Right? And, and there's so many times where I recognize that I'm beginning to go down a path that's paved by lies. Right? And, and when that's happening, the number one defense is to claim what's true, to go back to the truth. And in fact, this truth thing is twofold. On one hand, it is knowing truth. On the other hand, it is in, in, living truth and actually being truthful because the moment we give in to deception whether believing it or actually spreading it we weaken the armor right not just of ourselves but of others and so we need to appropriate and respond to truth by living in truth and being truthful people are you honest with yourself or do you kind of just tell yourself some lies sometimes just to to keep yourself from having to change Right? Are you honest with yourself and with others? Because it creates a firm foundation of armor. Right? But once we open ourselves in the slightest way to deception, we begin to undo the armor from the bottom. And what happens when you put truth on as a belt is that moment when you detect a lie, you confront it. And you're able to uh, disarm it. And when I sense the devil's accusation, and that's kind of the way he gets me, right? Oftentimes. I become more and more aware of this in my life that Man, there's these accusations that come against me. And I start thinking, gosh, you know, my sin discredits me from even from any of my ministry. And I, I just shouldn't, ah, I should just withdraw from the whole thing. And That's an accusation. Why? Because Jesus says, no, the truth is you're cleansed. That, that the blood of Christ cleanses you from all unrighteousness. Or you start to think, I have no business preaching the word at all. I mean, gosh, what do I have to say? And, and it says, this is an accusation. Right? This is, and it starts to thwart you. And then you claim the truth and you go, no, I know my calling. And I know what God's done in my life. And I know the fruit. And, I, right? and you go back to the truth. And this is true for you. Right? That your sin doesn't discredit you. That you're called to be a Christ one in the world. And to embody him in your work, in your school, in your neighborhood. So do it boldly. Because that's who Christ has called you to be. And we go back to Jesus and we claim our true identity, which is what Ephesians has been telling us all along. Do you know which deceptions take you out? 
Do you know which lies you tend to believe? Do you know where lies creep into your relationships and it kind of creates this distance? You ever notice that? The more untruth we have between us, the less we really know one another. And then actually the less we know each other, the less we're really able to love each other. If you really want to be loved, you have to be known. To be known, you have to be real. This is the way it goes. So we hold to the truth and we're able to be successful in the battles of life. Do you believe that today? This is the word of God for us. Now, next he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, what on earth does a breastplate do? It protects your vitals. Like anybody can take a sword to the arm. It would hurt, but it would be merely a flesh wound, right? And right, you take a sword to your guts and to your heart and your lungs, like your toast, your flatlining. Like we are, we are not, you're done, right? And so you put righteousness on as a breastplate. Right? And you can sustain the flesh wounds, but you can't take, be taken out at the heart. So how on earth does righteousness, and what is righteousness, by the way? Righteousness has to do with right relations, rightly related to God. I'm rightly related to others and self and creation. And I'm doing life in sync with the way God is designed. And so how does righteousness actually act as a defense for Christians and Satan's attack? How does it protect us where we're vulnerable? You have to understand righteousness is used in two ways in the New Testament. First of all, there's this idea of righteousness from places like Romans 3 and Galatians 2 and 3 where um, we find that trusting the Messiah Jesus, looking at his cross and resurrection and saying, you alone, what you've done saves me, forgives me, makes me right with God. When you trust in that, right, that gets you in right standing with God, gets you declared righteous. This is throughout the New Testament because Jesus absorbs our sin, takes our wickedness into himself, and he credits or gives us this verdict of righteousness. And so every day, no matter how bad it's going, you live with the freedom of this final verdict on your life that says righteous because of Jesus. Because there's been this transaction. You've given him your filth and he's given you his perfection. And you stand in that, and that protects your heart because it gives you freedom. But that's not all. To use a sports metaphor, Christ's righteousness gets you on the team. You can't get on the team by your own work. right? It's because of him that you get invited to the team. But then there's a second use of righteousness in the New Testament, and that is the righteousness you do. Right? Where, Christ, where the Bible essentially says Christ's righteousness gets you on the team. Your righteousness is what you do on the field. And a lot of Christians sit on the sidelines because they're on the team. And they think that's it. Oh, yay! We're on the team. Guess what? There's a game going on. And God says, um, I got you on the team so you could play. Right? And how many of you are on the sidelines? You're just like, Christ's righteousness covers me. I'm good. But you're ignoring the other half of the New Testament that's saying, and actually it's built on the themes of the Old Testament, saying, you do righteousness because you're in Christ's righteousness. Get in the game and play. Do works of right relationship with God, self, and others, and all creation. That's pretty good stuff. It makes Christianity a little bit more adventuresome, too. Right? It's not so boring. Now, um, where is I going with all that? Oh yeah, first, 
Second Corinthians chapter five. This is this wonderful place where it says Christ became sin, right? He absorbs our sins so that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, righteousness is this growing, becoming process kind of thing. Are you becoming righteous? Are you growing in right relations in all directions in your life? That's what God's called you to. Now, uh, again, it's right here in Ephesians. Paul says, put on the new self, which is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Okay, so this is this word for put on the new self is the same word for put on the whole armor of God. That means we do stuff. Okay, it gets us on the field and we play and we do righteousness. So are you righteous positionally with God? Yes. Are you growing in righteousness because of what Christ has done in your life? These things work together. Now, um, when we live that way, when we do righteousness, it keeps us from allowing Satan to have a foothold in our life, right? Because when you do wickedness, you're saying, hey, devil, you have free reign, right? You give him a part of yourself. You give him part of your, what, how you orient yourself uh, toward money. A little bit of greed is not going to hurt anybody. You've given a foothold. A little bit of lust isn't going to hurt anybody. You've given a foothold. A little bit of self-absorption is, well, I, it's just good uh, positive self-talk. No, you're full of yourself and you've given the devil a foothold, right? And so, anyways, on and on it can go. So doing righteousness, it's like this breastplate that holds our hearts firmly in place. Captivated on the love of Christ because of what he's done for us, but also moving forward on a life that's pleasing to God. Now, then there's this gospel of peace thing, right? That, that acts to give you firm footing. You know what causes me to lose peace? Anytime I think I'm in control. Right? Anytime I think somebody else is in control and God is not on the throne. That messes with me. But the gospel that Jesus preached is that the kingdom of God is at hand, which means... The whole message of all four Gospels is how God has become king in Jesus. In other words, who's in charge? God is, right? That Jesus is at the helm of the universe and he is stewarding everything for his glory. This helps give me peace. We have firm foundation in that. So not only are we firm, but it also makes our feet ready to bring the Gospel to places, right? To bring peace. Either way you look at it, God has the power of salvation. And you know what? Satan hates the gospel. He wants to thwart it because it's God's power to save. It's God's power to liberate people from the dominion of darkness and lies. It's the life-changing news of Jesus. Does that resonate through your bones in such a way you have peace because that's your defining reality? Then there's this whole shield of faith thing. Proverbs 37 says that God is a shield to those who take refuge in him. We look for shielding in all kinds of ways, right? We look for it in the relationships we have. We look for it in the stuff we possess and on and on. And yet, faith here is protective. It, it covers over this, this vulnerability to doubt and skepticism. And the fiery darts of the devil are those events and those thoughts in our lives that that get underneath the armor to undo our trust in God, right? And so, what are you trusting in? Ultimately, what faith comes down to is taking God at his word. Do I take God at his word and act in accordance with it? 
That's what it means to take up the shield of faith. I actually act in accordance with God's word, what he says. I live out of that. And, and this is where I recognize I have competing stories going on. My flesh says people are bad and trustworthy, or not trustworthy. But God says, be in community. Love others. Who am I going to take at their word? Right? Our society says, hey, sex is a fun event between any two people and it's recreational only. God says, hey, it's actually a whole person event that's meant to bond people in deeper intimacy in a covenant between man and wife, husband and wife. Okay, whose narrative am, am I going to buy? Right? On and on it goes. Who do I trust? Who's God around here? What story do I live out of? And there's this helmet of salvation, the whole work of God to redeem us and the world, our past, present, future, secure in the work of Christ. And we hold this reality close, right? Because it puts everything else in proper perspective. I mean, you kind of need a helmet when you're in battle, right? How much do we need our salvation? Do we recognize that it protects us, claiming what Christ has done protects us? Do you recognize that the only warrior you need is the one who came not to bring a sword of judgment, but to bear a sword of judgment for you? That the only saving you need is from the one who came to end sin and death and devil. To end evil without ending us. When you recognize who he is and what he's done, it protects you. It gives you perspective and it keeps you firm as you recognize what he's done once and for all and that we can stand against anything because we have his salvation. And finally, there's this thing called the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. There's only one weapon here mentioned that it is kind of both offensive and defensive. And it's a sword, right? On one hand, when you have the Word of God, it defends you against temptation and accusation, but it also cuts against darkness, doesn't it? When you speak truth, it has this offensive power. Some of us are offended at truth, aren't we? I'm not saying use truth in a way that's just hurtful and rude. I'm saying truth has a way of undoing the real enemy. And the real enemy isn't people, right? You're not here to offend people. You're here to undo darkness and deception with truth and light. And so you do that in a spirit of love. But anyways, this works in our own life, right? What was Jesus' main strategy to defend himself against Satan's temptations in Matthew chapter 4? What did he do? How did he reply? He replied with the word of God. Right? This is this amazing uh, tool we have. Now, if you're like not a reader, I went to YouVersion last night. It's not only available on the iPhone, it is also available on the web for free. You can listen to the entire Bible anytime you want where you have internet access. Okay? Anybody have internet access in here? Okay. You can actually have it in here. If you need, like, I don't know if I should give out the password if you don't already have it, but I don't want to get in trouble. But... Right? We have access to the Word. Even if you're like not a reader, you can hear it. It'd be like first century people who probably couldn't read anyway. A bunch of them. So you're just hearing the Word. There's a way to get the Word into your hearts and mind all the time. We should be soaking in the Word. Okay? Um, like, I'm a, I'm a fan of, like, books, right? Like, I, I love to sit down and read my Bible. But are you getting it into you? Are you soaking it up? 
Because here's, here's why the word's so important. Because it's not just about a great set of ideas. Oh, hey, look at these awesome ideas. Or this awesome rule book where, oh, yeah, live by this and work harder and try to be more and do more. No, what the word does is it's a story that unfolds and shows us Jesus. Right? Cover to cover, it reveals him. It's his heart encapsulated in narrative and poetry and discourse. And you, you get into it, and it, it becomes a lens that's freeing and protective in the places that you're vulnerable. Here's why. Because it leads you to Jesus. And he alone, and his finished work, the results and the realities of what he's done, gives you the only protection you need where you're vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy. It's not about a book. It's about a person that the book points to. Do you read it in such a way that you grow in love for the Savior? All right. Now, that's not it. How do we get it? How do we get the armor? We know what it is. We know how it works. But how do we get it? Finally, Paul says in Ephesians six eighteen, praying at all times um, in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And to that end, be alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I'm an ambassador in chains. So, a couple things. Praying all the time. See, prayer is this primary way where we cultivate an awareness of the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done. As we pray, as we seek him, yeah, we ask to change circumstances, but ultimately prayer is this amazing way, this conversational way of engaging God such that we become changed. And that's... What we're doing, we're walking the knowledge of who Christ is from our head to our heart as we pray. I think so often, as we pray, so we live. As the church prays, so it lives in the world. Right? We begin to reflect what we pray for. All kinds of prayer. No formula. It's freeing, right? Like, hey, all kinds of prayer. You can thank Him, you can confess, you can celebrate, you can contemplate. Right? You don't have to pray the Lord's Prayer all the time. I pray it oftentimes when I don't know what else to pray. Um, and sometimes I pray just because like, I want to just focus on what Jesus said. All kinds of prayer. Read the Psalms. This is our, our instruction book on how to pray. And by the way, it's pretty raw. Right? No formulas there. It's like, God, where are you? This is prayer. <laughs> okay? All right. So all kinds of prayers. Focused on him, moving towards him. Supplication, I love this idea. We can't do battle and stand firm if we're doing it by ourselves. The idea here is we're praying for all the saints all the time. Do you have all the saints in your head as you pray? Are you praying at all? And when you do, do you have the other saints in mind? Because we need each other and we need to be shoulder to shoulder and hip to hip as we face our greatest foe where we're vulnerable. Making all kinds of supplications. I'm requesting things on behalf of my brothers and sisters. And I'm keeping alert. Watching out. What's God doing in my life? In my church? In my neighborhood? How am I being lied to? Right? And what am I doing about it? Right? And persevering. I'm staying at it. Staying with prayer. And then the last thing that Paul says. He's asking for bold empowerment to share the gospel. Bold advancement of the good news. Okay? I had a great conversation last week. Rich Gardner, after our Sunday evening service came up, after I, we had talked about the schemes of the devil, and he's like, I kind of am bummed that all we ha- can do is stand. Like, I feel like we should be doing something more than just standing. Like, that just doesn't seem like enough. And I'm like, I agree. That's, that's rough, right? Like, the best you're going to do is stand in battle. That doesn't seem like... Well, and I said, well, I think that tells you how powerful the enemy is. 
So I've been thinking about that all week. I'm like, well, okay. How is it then that we're supposed to stand, but we have this yearning for more? Let me tell you what I think Paul's doing here. I think he's saying your job is to stand. The gospel's job is to advance. Because you know what? When you advance, you're going to make mistakes and you're going to think the enemies are people. But Paul said, enemies, not flesh and blood. Right? It's the powers. And the gospel is the power of God to undo the powers that hold people captive to lies and darkness and sin and guilt and shame and all that stuff that goes with Satan's rule. So you get to stand firm. God moves forward with his gospel. Right? And we stand, and that's pretty cool. I think that's pretty powerful. But is that your heart? Do you pray deeply for the gospel to advance at work, at home, at school, in your neighborhood, with the people that you rub shoulders with? You just Your heart breaks until they know they're loved and the hope that they have in Christ. Think about the gospel in Acts as it goes from Jerusalem out to the ends of the earth. As soon as people were persecuted, what did they pray? God, make it stop. No, they said, God, give us boldness. You know what happened? The room shook and God answered the prayer and they were bold and the gospel continued to go out into all the earth. That should be our heart. Bold advancement of the gospel. Not that everything will just get better and I'll be more comfortable, but the gospel of God would go forward among those I love and into all the earth. And do we pray for that? Is that your heart? Let me tell you today that if it's not your heart, Don't go home beating yourself up. Go home praying that it becomes your heart. That bold advancement of the gospel would become something that you're praying into your own heart. Well, prayer alone doesn't get us to stand. It's always prayer in relation to Jesus. That's what's going on here. Prayer is ultimately about relationship. I love the end of Ephesians. Grace be with all who love the Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. The final verse of Ephesians calls our attention to what truly protects our vulnerability, to what truly seals our identity in Christ. God's grace in our lives motivates a love for Jesus. And when my gaze is on him, I stand firm. We focus on him, and we're able to stand. That's his response of love. It begins with his grace. He first loved us, and I focus on the Savior. I love him, and I grow in love for him, and it makes sin ugly, and it makes accusation weak, and I stand firm. And it's when we look at the Savior more than our sin that we're captivated by the results and the realities of what Jesus has done for us. And then we're able to stand because our hearts are armored against discouragements and the things that Satan comes at at us with. So keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep it on him. You see, Ephesians is saying we have been blessed with every blessing in Christ. Guess what? Stand firm in Christ. Walk worthy of the gospel right? that we have our calling in Christ. Put on the new self in Christ. You can stand firm today because you're in him. Let's pray. Let's take communion together. We'll have the ushers come and bring us communion as we celebrate and participate in the reality that we stand. The victory of Jesus for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the letter of Ephesians because it points to the Christ, the Messiah who's done battle, who's won, and in whose victory we stand. Thank you for him. Thank you for his grace and his love and 
the, the saving work that he's done in our life. And I pray, Father, for your emboldening, for the, your empowering of your spirit on this congregation as we go from here, standing firm in our identity as those blessed with every blessing, walking worthy because we participate in the victory of your Son. We love you and we thank you for the bread and what it symbolizes in the cup and what it symbolizes that these are a participation in your work for us. Thank you for your grace in Jesus' name. Amen.